We are in the midst of a series where we started asking our questions of our kids and asking our kids downstairs, our K through fifth graders, and one of the activities was for them to ask questions. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes that can be a dangerous thing, asking kids questions, right? Because you're never, never quite sure what you're going to get. In fact, there used to be a TV show, um, say, kids say the darndest things. Yeah, okay, and they do. Um, I think there should be another TV show called Adolescents Say the Darndest Things, um, because I was sitting out there during first service, and my 13-year-old son, who plays guitar, um, he elbowed me, and he says, take notes. Because Greg was up here leading worship, so he just wanted to, to get a jab in, in at me. And so I elbowed him back and I said, watch Chad take notes and learn how to play guitar. So it was a, it was a lot of fun. But on a side note, I am just thankful to be able to, to worship at this church and to have the group of people we have, Greg and this whole team. But it's not just this team, it's people in the booth. It's people that serve in children's ministry. It's people that come up throughout the week and get things ready. Um, many of you be in prayer throughout the week for what God is doing. We can't do this alone. We do it together. I'm thankful to be a part. And it was a blessing to me to be able to sit in service, both services and worship along. I don't get to do that much. And so um, it was a great thing for me. But I digress. Kids ask some funny questions, don't they? And I think if we're honest, some of the questions they ask are questions you and I have asked, right? Um, Last week, John looked at the Ten Commandments. This week, we're looking at this small, little, minute question. How was God made? You ever thought about that question? All right, like some of the questions that I think you and I think about is, you know, and kids would ask is, where does the sun go at night? How come vegetables don't taste like chicken? That's because everything else tastes like chicken. And then we have questions like, how was God made? Where did God come from? Valid questions that have deep theological meanings and questions that sometimes you and I may just take for granted. And so as we wrestle with this question this morning, my goal is to simply present to you what the Scriptures teach about who God says He is. Because here's the truth. We are finite human beings and we cannot comprehend the incomprehensible. But we can look to His Word and find out what does this book say? And what does this book reveal about our God? Because this is what this book is all about. This book here is our truth. This book here is our compass. This book here holds life in it. This book here tells us who our God is. This is how God chose to reveal himself to this world. Once Christ ascended and the church started, they collected these works. And God has revealed himself in this word. On a side note, if you want to know God, you want to know who he is, this is the book you pick up to read. This is the book. This is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so this morning, I encourage you to find a blank notebook page in your Bible. It could be in the back. It could be on one of your pages. It could be in the front because I am going to use a lot of scriptures to help share and explain and teach who God says who he is. How was God made? And so if I can answer this question, I would answer it this way. God is eternal. God is eternal. God has no beginning and no end. 
Because if God had a beginning, then certainly there would be another God. That only God in and of himself could be himself. That if there was a God that was created, then certainly there had to be another higher God that created that God. And see, you and I live in the constraints of time and space, and we don't live where God lives, although God chooses to live with us. So this is a big theological doctrine I'm going to teach you this morning called aseity. You ever heard this? Aseity. It comes from the Latin word a and se, and it means from himself. This is explaining what the scripture teaches about who God is, that he comes from himself, that he is self-sufficient. He needs no one else to do anything for him, and we'll get to that in a minute. Divine aseity means that God has life in himself. The late theologian John Webster said this about this theological doctrine. He said, he is the one who, out of nothing other than his own self-sufficiency, brings creatures into being, sustains and reconciles them, and brings them to perfection and fellowship with himself. And why is this important? Because God made the universe so that it would show forth the excellence of his character. That is, it would show forth his glory. You know, God is all about his glory. He is all about his name because that's who he is. He's worthy to be worshiped. He's worthy for us to come in here and raise our voices together collectively in praise of him. But it's not just musical worship. You know how you can give God glory? I oftentimes get up here really early in the morning on Sundays, maybe not throughout the week. And oftentimes I get to see the sun coming over, over the top of the, of the trees over here. And I see all the different colors and hues. Do you remember the last sunrise you saw? Do you remember the colors if it wasn't foggy? Do you remember that time you were on that beach or you are on that lake and you saw the sunset and you saw all of nature in its glory? You can go on NASA's website and look up these unbelievable pictures taken with cameras that you and I would never have access to and see billions and billions of stars and you see God in his majesty and his glory and he created it all for his worship. Now how does this play out in our lives? I heard a pastor that I listen to and look to and read books. His name is Matt Chandler down in Dallas, Texas and, and I'm stealing this from him and I'm paraphrasing it from him. Do you realize that we have these taste buds that are really intricate? Unless you have COVID, then you've lost them for a while. <laughs> Which I have, and gained them back. It was miserable. Not being able to smell. and t- Well, smelling, I could get by without smelling. But taste? Like, I'm eating bacon and eggs, and I'm feeling the texture, and I cannot taste the food. And I long for that day where my taste would return, and I could just not feel the texture, but all the senses that it brings about. You know that time where you haven't eaten anything in a while, and you put something in your mouth, and like your, your mouth, like, it, ah, you know, it's like doing cartwheels. You're like, woo, I wasn't expecting that. God gave you taste buds. He created all this plethora of foods that we could enjoy to bring out these flavors. He didn't have to do that. I think of the movie, The Matrix. It's a sci-fi movie. I'm not encouraging or recommending. I'm not saying anything. I just saw it years ago. 
And the matrix is this idea that all the world that we live in is just a computer program. Okay, and follow with me. I got a really good point on this, I promise. And that the matrix is this created program that you and I are forced to live in, and we really don't know what reality is. But if you take the red pill, we'll take you out of the reality and put you inside the machine, and you'll get to see how it all works. The only problem with that is inside the machine's not very fancy. It's not very good. And the whole goal was to get out of the machine and into the real, true reality. But when they lived in this ship inside the matrix, what they did is they had like this bowl of mush. This was their food. It's like grits. It's like oatmeal, cream of wheat with no seasoning. And they would eat it and they would mush it. And one of the, guy, one of the guys in the movie, he just says, I just want to be sent back into the matrix, wipe my, my memory clean, and I just want to taste steak again. Can I get an amen on the steak? Like, the thing about steak, if you're a meat eater, is you could have just filled your stomach up with dinner. You run over to Washington, you run down downtown Union, and you smell Union City Barbecue, who's been smoking that brisket for 12 hours, and you are full, yet you want a bite, don't you? Because your senses are telling you this is something really good. And you take that steak, and you season it just right, and you sear it just right, and you cook it just to the right temperature you like, and you cut it open, there's juices in there. Please do not use A1. Don't ruin a steak with A1 sauce, okay? God gave you these taste buds, and here's the difference between someone who puts their faith in God, in Christ, and someone who doesn't. is when you take that bite of steak, this is what Matt Chandler said, You give him worship. You praise him by saying, thank you, God, for this piece of food that I can taste and experience and consume. Where someone without the knowledge of God just eats it, and the glory is left to the steak itself. A piece of meat. Worship is about God's glory, his majesty, as he revealed himself in nature, but also in this book. And how do we know him? To worship him, we know him by the character. One of his character attributes is that he is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. And sometimes we just have to believe in faith that because we are human beings stuck in time, that the God that exists out of time, who is eternal, I have to just trust that. Because the moment that I would begin to understand in its capacity, I wouldn't be a human being. Like We, we, we would never get there. We never transcend to that moment. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17 he was preaching to these Greek, these Greek philosophers. Um, and he was at this place called the Areopagus. They would gather around and they would discuss how the universe works. How does life work? How did, why am I made? What's my purpose? And they're always looking for things to kind of fill their lives and give them purpose. And Paul comes in and he sees it as a great opportunity to preach the gospel, to point them to God. And here's what he says in Acts chapter 17, because if we go back to this idea of aseity, that God is eternal, that he came from himself, that he exists outside of time, that he has no beginning and he has no end, and he is self-sufficient. Here's what Paul tells them in chapter 17, verse 22. He says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Pause real quick. There are people that aren't attending a church service this morning and will not attend next week and have not attended in years. And they are worshiping a God. They're carrying their flags that say, this is the God I worship. 
They're plastering bumper stickers on their vehicle saying, this is the God I worship. Idolatry runs rampant in our nation. And I don't care what side you're on. I'm on the side of the kingdom of God first. And there is idolatry. People put their hope and their trust and their faith in what government and officials can do for them, bringing them salvation when they will fall flat on their face. So don't for an instant think that we don't live in idolatrous, idolatrous nation or world. Worship is happening. In fact, many people will go home after church and they'll turn their TV and they will watch some grown men chase each other around, tackle each other. I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying don't worship that. But the truth is we worship so many things. We, our hearts just make idols of so many things. We are just like these Greeks and philosophers and so Paul is seeing this in them, and I'm saying this to you, that he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth and having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God does not need us to serve him. He needs nothing from us. The eternal God who has always been, has always existed, he is self-sufficient in himself. He doesn't need us to love him. He doesn't need the affection of us. Yet because he is love, we know what love is. That's what the apostle John, the apostle of love said. We love because he first loved us not the other way around. And so I say that to say Paul even understood that God has always existed and we bring nothing to the table, but he brings it to us. Now here's where you're going to get your pen and paper out because I'm going to roll through quite a few passages. And my goal in this is to share with you that God is eternal. He says that he is eternal. And so this is important for us because it helps our lives. And I'll get to that in a minute. Psalm 90 Verse 1 and 2, this is one of the, the only psalm attributed to Moses. Moses, the prophet of God, who spoke with God as a man speaks to a man, who went up the mountain, wanted to see God's, God's glory. What a bold prayer. What a bold ask. God, show me your glory. And so he says, well, I can't show you my glory because you will die because I am holy and you are not. And so he hides him in the cleft of the mountain and he walks by and God covers him up and he sees a glimpse of the backside of God and he's just lit up was to see God's glory. And he writes this as he comes down the mountain. And the people are in fear of God, and there's this cloud covering the mountain. And he comes down, and you know what happened? With his brother Aaron, they created a God out of gold and worshipped it 
And then Moses or Aaron lied. And so they understood that Moses was doing something, but they couldn't wait. They couldn't see his glory, and they lost track of his glory. And so Moses shares this psalm to this people, and he says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, some versions say birthed the earth, and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God never changes. God has always been. He will always be. He has been there before time. He will be there after time. God is eternal. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Who inhabits eternity? The one who is holy. Deuteronomy 33, verse 27 says this, The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There is no other. Revelation 1, 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is, and who is, to, come, is to come, the Almighty. God has always been. And God always being, this eternal being, this eternal God, draws us in to worship Him. If you read Psalm 23, many of you know this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it talks about leading Him beside still waters and making Him lie down in green pastures, why? You may have missed this, but he says, for my namesake. God is jealous about his glory. You may ask, well, how can God be a jealous God? Doesn't he say, don't be jealous? Isn't that a sin? And for you and I, it is. But we are not God. I remember leading a song um, called um, How He Loves. We've done that song here before. And there was a line in that song that says, he is jealous for me. Why is God jealous? Why is it okay? Because he is the only God. Any other God is false worship, idol worship. He is the holy and righteous one, worthy of our praises, worthy of our thanksgiving. He is the beginning and the end. And if God is eternal, guess what that means for you and I? He made us eternal. You and I are eternal beings. We are not just flesh and bone but we have a soul or a spirit that lives within us. And that soul is meant to carry on. This life will end. Do you guys know if I would throw out the term YOLO, what that means? I can't even tell you said that because we got some masks on. <laughs> YOLO, it means you only live once. But you know what? That's just not true. That's just not true. You live twice, but you die once. For those in Christ, you die once. For those outside of Christ, guess what? You face a second death. And that second death is judgment against your life versus a holy life. And so that's just not true. Your best life now is not your best life. So much of our lives are put into this world 
What can I gather and gain? I'm dating myself here. Do you remember the no fear t-shirts and slogans? These things come and go. But I remember this one, and it said, He who has the most toys still dies. Well, it may have said when. I think maybe the Christian version said dies. He who has the most toys dies. And so often in this world, we are trying to grasp at whatever we can gain. And this doesn't just mean things. This could be success. This could be the house. This could be the cars. This could be the guitars. This could be the hobbies. It is a way of of just infiltrating our hearts and our lives to where these become more important. And if this is all this world has to offer, if there is no eternal God and there is no tomorrow after this life, then I'm dropping the mic and I'm leaving. And I'm going to go get mine. And I'm going to gather every pleasure I can get in this world. And that's what the world lives for. But you and I, as Christians, as Christ followers, we live for something different because we know that we were created for another nature, another new beginning. That this life isn't all that it is. And how do we know this? Ecclesiastes 3.11. This is from the preacher. It could be Solomon himself. He wrote Ecclesiastes, a timely book, and I would encourage you to read it sometime. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says this, He has made everything beautiful in time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You will not understand everything, but you will understand this. There's something in you that you wake up that you know this isn't all that there is. This cannot be all that there is. All the pain, all the suffering, all the struggle, day after day, the grind. If this is all there is, what a depressing world that we live in. But I think you and I know there's something greater. There's something that our hearts are pulled towards. And Ecclesiastes says that God has set the eternity, eternity into, the man, into, the heart's man, into man's heart. Easier said. You and I have a desire for something greater, and God has put that in your heart. Let's go even further. John 3, 16. You ever heard this verse? Well, if not, I'm going to read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You want to live once in eternity? All God asks you to do is to put your faith and trust in his son. And you won't face the second death. And then we get to say Yodo. I wish it was Yoda. Because if it was Yoda, it would be much cooler. You only die once because eternity awaits. And I know, on a side note, oftentimes, as a kid and even into my adulthood, you kind of lay in bed at night sometimes and stay awake for hours wondering what heaven would be like. My kids ask me this. What's it going to be like? And I say, it's going to be your best day times infinity. It's going to be beyond your understanding, beyond your imagination. That's why John painted this picture in Revelation that we can't quite grasp, but he's trying to to display in human terms what he saw. 
You will get to sit in the presence and glory of God, and that's all you will need because he is all that we need. It's like, take your greatest day. What would be your greatest day? Skydiving? Eating at Ruth Chris? Ruth's Chris? Driving a Ferrari? Sleeping in? Still having eight hours to work in? Take your best day. It won't even compare to what awaits us. The presence of our God. Eternity awaits all of us. And I love this story in John chapter 11. Jesus is walking along and Mary and Martha come to him. Mary and Martha were his friends. And they had a brother named Lazarus. And Lazarus was one of Jesus' greatest friends. In fact, so much so that when Lazarus died, John eleven thirty five 35 says, Jesus wept. I know this because in Bible college, you, you learn what the shortest verse in the Bible is, and that is it. You want to memorize a verse, there you go. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. You're done for the, for the day. Jesus cared about this man. He was his friend. And Mary and Martha run to Jesus. And they say, oh, Lord, Lord, if you would have come a few days earlier, you could have saved him. But now he has passed away. He's, he's dead. And I'm paraphrasing this. And Jesus starts to explain to them, no, 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 there will be a resurrection. And Martha says, Lord, Lord, we know they believed in the resurrection. We know that at that day, that day when God returns, that you will resurrect all those in Christ. You, we, we believe in the resurrection. And Jesus says, he kind of like, hold up. While that is true, he's getting at something else. Here's what he says in John eleven twenty five, 25 regarding this idea of, of resurrection, He says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You see, you and I live on this side of eternity, but we long for it. We hope for it. We put our faith and trust into the God who came and saved us, knowing that he will resurrect our bodies. And if you're like me, that day can't come soon enough. Do you ever just realize that your body just isn't what it used to be? You, you can't do the things that you thought you could do? Like your mind's telling you one thing and your body says, eh, nope. I try to do the ripstick. That is the dumbest invention ever. Let's take a skateboard with four wheels that don't move that are already hard to ride on. And let's take two wheels and let's make them move. Christine always says, don't do that. you got to go to work in the morning. I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, why is my ankle? Like, it hurts. I'm sleeping. Try to raise my arm up, and it only goes to a certain height. I'm like, what is going on? Right? Like, these bodies that we live in are mortal. But one day, when that sky is peeled open, and Jesus returns on his steed, fire in his eyes, coming. We will join him in that procession as he comes to make all things right. I long for that day. God is eternal. He made us eternal. And that means eternity matters. 
It's not just that we long for that day, although we do. It means that even in the here and now, talking about the eternal nature of God and that you and I were made for something more, that we will live on in perfect unity and harmony with God because of what he's done. That when that day arrives, like it matters now. Eternity matters. We don't think eternally often enough, do we? We think temporally. What can I get now? I need to pay my bills now. I have to go to work now. I have to do this and this and this. And so often we get consumed with the temporary that we miss the eternal nature. But here's the thing. There are people in our lives uniquely placed by God that only you can reach. He can reach. But he chooses to reach through you because he has set eternity into the hearts of man. That means my neighbor is important. That means my coworkers are important, that I don't just try to get through the day. I mean, there are times I just want to take my truck and drive it through my neighbor's front yard. Full disclosure. I don't have to look very far inwardly into this heart of mine to realize that Jeremiah 17.9 rings true. It says the heart is wicked and it's evil above all else. I don't have to wake up every day and realize that's true. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me a new heart and continuing to work in my life because otherwise I'm driving my truck through the yard. Eternity matters because God has uniquely equipped you to be the hands and feet of the Son Christ who empowers you through His Spirit to live out this life not only for your good and your sake, but for the sake of others. Do you want to know how I believe union can be transformed? It's not from policies. It's not from mayors or governors or presidents. It's the power of the people of God living out their faith, loving one another. You want to see people fed? Go feed them. You want to see people clothed? Take them close. You want to see union changed for the glory of God? And I believe this. This is a prayer of mine. I'm praying for a revival. I'm praying that of the 100,000 people that live in this county, that 75,000 of these people do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 75,000. Eternity matters because I believe that God can bring revival through his people when they put eternity first. They put others first. And we have this example, don't we? What did Jesus do? Jesus was there at the beginning. Before I get to what Jesus did, let's get to Jesus as a, this is a completely different sermon, and I think it's, it's on the docket. It's called the Trinity. You're going to learn some church doctrines in the next couple weeks. This doctrine is that there is one God made up of three persons. You will understand it just as much as you understand why the sky is blue. But you can wrestle with it, and it's important to wrestle with it because God is the Father and the Son and the Spirit all working together, yet each unique. There is one God. And guess what? Jesus was there at the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis 1.1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us. Let us? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. 
There's a plurality in that language. That means it wasn't just God by himself, but it was God as Father, Son, and Spirit. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus was there at the beginning. It's 2,000 years ago he came as a man, but he's always been there with God the Father, creating. Jesus, who sat at the right hand of the Father, with all the inheritance, with all the riches. And what did he do? He entered into time in space as a man. He lived the life completely free of idolatry, and he was tempted in every way like you and I, but he was without sin. And he lived the life that you and I should live. Why? So he could give us his righteousness. It makes no sense. You and I on our best day cannot come up with the plan of grace. Plan of justice, maybe. Possibly mercy, but never grace. And Jesus enters this world, and does he enter it riding on a horse? He enters it as an infant, relying on others to take care of him with scorn. Mary, she's having a baby. Her and Joseph aren't really married yet. How? What? You know, you know people like that. Jesus didn't have a home to live in. He didn't have a bed to lay his head on. He relied on others to feed him, primarily women support his ministry. Then after he faces trial as an innocent man, what happens? They beat him, they mock him, they scorn him, and they strip him naked and put him on a cross. This is God eternal from all creation, knowing this was plan A. There was no plan B. Adam and Eve didn't surprise God. He didn't like put him in the garden and be like, whoop, I, I turned my, my head for one minute and look what happened. How could you do this? In fact, the questions that God was asking Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not that God didn't know. He was asking questions to invite them back into relationship with him. God is good like that. This was always his plan set from eternity past, that Jesus would enter, live the life you and I should have lived, that he takes our place. This is the God that I serve. This is why when Christ infiltrates our heart in every corner. And not that you won't struggle. You'll walk out of here and you might even have a thought come through your head as you leave the parking lot. But as we rely on his grace, this is why we serve those around us. This is why we can say, I forsake all things in this world, Lord, because I live for the world to come. And I know that whatever I can do to reach those in your name, to love them in your name, as Christ did to us, because you were lame and crippled. You were unworthy, and you were broken. And what did God do? He lifts you up, and he carries you to the table, and he allows you to feast with him. This is what God does. And it's because of what he did that you and I are empowered to do what we can do through him. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. I want to end with this. Because God's eternal, because we too are eternal, and because eternity matters, I want to share two things with you. And the worship team can come up. Oftentimes in our lives, and you will hear me say this a lot, the gospel is left for those outside of Christ. 
The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something. The gospel is good news for every single person in this room. Every day, all the time. Why? Because we don't believe the gospel. Our lives say we don't believe the gospel. When I put my trust into anything else, I'm not believing that Jesus is enough. And so we have two aspects. We have for those in this room online, our friends that are asking questions that know that God has set some eternity in their hearts and they're longing for it. We have the responsibility to say, there is a God who loves you. And he entered this world and he lived the life you should have lived and he died the death you should have died. And if you just put your trust and faith that he did that for you and believe in him, you will have eternal life. But I want to encourage you Christians, you faithful Christ followers who show up on Sundays, who pray, that we can beat ourselves up for not being good enough and you will never be good enough. That is the point. The point is that Jesus was, Jesus is. He's all that we need. So I want to share with you a verse Philippians 1.6. Paul's writing the Philippian church. Beautiful little church. They supported Paul in prison. They gave financially. They believed in his message. He started this church and they're, by God's grace, moving on. And he says this to them. He says this in verse 6. He says, I am sure of this, that he, that's God, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. God started a work in your life. He revealed himself to you. And you may have been doing like this or something, and then he, you grab onto something and it's, it's his hand. And he gives you a new heart, is what Ezekiel says. He changes your heart. He changes your life. Like the video we saw earlier, he is doing the work in you. And so we rest in his work, knowing that even on our worst day, he still loves us because he is faithful. You and I aren't quite that faithful, are we? We do our best. We work our best. But we're not faithful all the time. Guess what? God is faithful. That is a part of his nature. He is the promise keeper. When he makes a promise, he keeps it and he finishes it and he fulfills it. And he started a work in you. And guess what? He's not going to stop until that work is complete. That means if it takes 40 years, 80 years, the suffering that you go through, the wondering why life is so difficult, it's because God is at work in your life making you more like Christ because he loves you. He's unwilling to leave you in that state. And so, Christian, this is our promise that he who began the work in you, he will bring it to completion. Amen. It's good news. We put our faith and trust in our Lord. And that's my prayer this morning. And as we look at God's eternal nature, that we realize that we were created for eternity as well. And that eternity matters. And I'm so thankful that it's God doing the work in us and through us. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship? God, thank you that our kids can ask these questions, that we can wrestle uh, with these questions. Lord, where did you come from? 
And even if we don't in our finite minds ever fully understand or comprehend, Lord, we know that you have revealed yourself through your word. And if we would just read it and we would just pray through it, we would just talk about it, we would begin to learn and know more and more about you. And although we may not have all the answers, God, our faith will be built up in you. So God, I pray for this church. I pray for this county and the churches that gather here. Lord, that you would finish the work that you started. And for those who have just started, Lord, I pray that you would just work in their lives, holding them fast to your word. God, I pray that we would wake up each morning and remember that in Christ, we are deeply loved by you. Thank you, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.